book Ephesians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 21. Ephesians 5 verse 21. And if you could just keep your finger there because we're going to go through a bit of background first. Now, most sermon weeks, my prep begins on a Monday and I'll spend several hours a day on it until it's finished, usually on a Friday, but sometimes earlier. And of course that all depends on one vital thing, that I actually know what I'm going to preach on. And that's not usually a problem, but this past week I found myself floundering. I was like, ah! Ah! <laughs> Thank you, Colin. So I was talking to Colfane about this on Tuesday and he suggested that maybe we should round out what he had brought us on biblical manhood and womanhood by a topical study on complementarianism. Listen to that carefully. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but it seemed like a good idea. Um, but I was thinking about it and thought, well, I can do that in about two minutes, and I don't think anybody would like me to pad it out to 45. So, what to do? After a bit of reflection and uh, quite a lot of worried prayer, I decided to do this. We've already looked at what the Old Testament has to say about men and women. So how about the New Testament? What does it say? Have things changed? And of course there are a few possibilities to look at, but I think the most useful text is this one here in Ephesians. And although I have already preached through it, it was more than three years ago already, and we do have quite a lot of new faces in our congregation. So that's what we'll do today. What does biblical manhood and womanhood broadly look like in the New Testament in the context of marriage. But, first of all, we are going to give those two minutes to complementarianism. What is that? Well, I kind of feel like I should give you ten bucks if you can even say it properly. And Colin, I want you to know that it is not the art of saying nice things to people in the hope that they'll give you something cool. That's spelt differently. So what is it? Complementarianism is the doctrine that while God created men and women absolutely equal in value and personhood and equal in bearing his image, both creation and redemption indicate some distinct roles for men and women in marriage and in the church. Thank you, Mr. Grudem, for your explanation in your huge book of systematic theology. So let me try to restate that. Any man or woman can say with confidence that in being me, both in my character and as a spiritual being, I am treasured and valued and made by God in exactly the same amount and way as any other human. It is the most perfect of level playing fields. However, my body is plainly different to those of the opposite sex, not worse, but different, and the way that I am expected to serve God amongst other people is plainly different. Not inferior, but different. You see, the differences between men and women do not overlap or divide. They are intended by God to connect and unite. They are complementary. Now, the dictionary describes complementary as meaning a person or a, a thing that completes something or one of two parts that make up a whole or complete each other. And that's exactly how God has made us, a, a jigsaw part, puzzle of two parts that put together, they make a picture of himself. There. 
I said it would take two minutes. But I don't just want to leave you with a definition because that might lack a bit of authority. It's just my opinion. So I, want to do, I do want to spend another few minutes, but not 45, talking from Scripture about why we are this way and why consequently we ought to live as God made us rather than in the way that the world pressures us to do. Let's start by looking at Genesis 1, 27. And don't worry to go to your Bibles. I'll put it up on the, the screen here. I hope. Yeah. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's very significant that the act of creating humans is connected so immediately to God's image. In fact, it's stressed, isn't it? Because this verse actually says it twice, both forwards and back, backwards. So there can be no mistake then. Men and women are created in God's image. So what does that actually mean? Well, biblical accounts of humans seeing God literally tend towards encounters of the blinding light variety. Now, perhaps I'm visually impaired, but I can't see anybody here today who has this particular difficulty. Although, to be fair, perhaps the top of Kilfane's head can be a bit of a problem in bright sunlight. <laughs> so, if humans do not actually look like God, what does it mean that we are made in his image? Well, if I try to think about God's image, the first thing that comes to my mind is his triune nature. God is one in person, but three in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please, don't expect me to explain how this is possible, because I just can't. And there are lots of folk who are much, much smarter than I am who have tried, and they've also failed. But I like it this way, because the inexplicable nature of God proves to me that he is as big and powerful as he says he is. And those two things guarantee that the promises he has made to me will never be empty. He can do what he says he will do. So, I really hope that you too will like that the Trinity is inexplicable too. So let's return to it. Even more confusingly, Scripture shows us clearly that although each of the persons of the Trinity is fully God, they nonetheless do have separate characters. And there is something of a chain of authority. Generally, the Son serves the Father, and the Spirit's work always supports and points to the Son. And of course there's a theological term for this relationship. It is da -da -da, perichoresis. It's made up of two Greek words, peri, which means around, and korain, which means to give way or to make room. So it could be translated a kind of a rotation or a, a going around. It's like God's three persons go around and around each other in their work. Not avoiding or getting in each other's way, but aiding, working together. Is there an illustration? Of course there is. Here in scripture, perichoresis is demonstrated by Jesus' prayer in John 17. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And then we can compare this to John 16:14, in which Jesus says, The Holy Spirit will glorify me. So the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. The loving relationships within the Trinity result in the persons of the Godhead giving glory to one another. Well, there it is. Perichoresis. Now, I always find 
mental pictures are helpful when trying to remember what fancy terms like this mean. And in this case, I've already said the first part of the word peri means around. If you, if you ever hear a word that has a beginning peri, you know that means something's going around. And the choresis bit reminds me of chorus. Not the, not the song kind that we do here, but the dancing kind, a, a heavenly dancing chorus. So when I see the word perichoresis, I think about an eternal and perfect dance between the three persons of God. And although one likes disco, one likes ballet, and the other likes ballroom, they never collide or stand on the other's foot. They are always graceful and they always love the dance and they love each other's company. And each one brings something special to the whole. By now, I hope you've made some link to how and why humans have been made in God's image. He made us in marriage really to have the same perichoritic relationship as him. A life of beautiful and intimate dance between, in our case, two persons, not three. Each the same in importance to him, different in character to the other, but complementary in unity. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts, as is often said. So I'm glad we've set that one to bed. So let's move on now to look at some real dance steps. Let's finally read our passage in Ephesians. And just so you know, I'm going to jump around a little bit because we'll be referring back to some of these verses later on. So I'm going to start in verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump along to uh, verse 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children... And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, apparently I bought myself a bucket load of trouble there. But I am not afraid. This is God's holy word. So let's see how we go. And I'm going to have to move very fast from here because I'm actually condensing two and a bit sermons here into one. 
Well, the first thing we can see when we look at this text is that it's specifically aimed at married believers. Wives, submit to your own husbands. It's not aimed at male-female relationships generally. So, if you aren't married, I guess you can go back to the, the hall for tea now. Nobody, nobody's going? Good, because this passage still has three points of application for you. A, it's helpful in showing, for example, how in general men ought to behave respectfully towards women. B, boyfriends and girlfriends, although these instructions can't be binding for you, there's still that saying, the more I practice, the luckier I get. But to be very lucky, you still need to know what to practice, don't you? Let's just have an example here. So just take, take uh, Roberto and Lucy. Boyfriend and girlfriend, a very lovely young couple if you ever saw one. If Roberto is serious about his faith and his relationship, he will do very well to use these principles. For example, because Roberto sees his actions towards his girlfriend in the same sacrificial light as Christ's relationship to the church, he isn't going to tread those paths that look so inviting yet are against God's plan for the unmarried. And so he will be creating some really good habits for later in the relationship and strengthening it before it becomes formalized in marriage. So I ask you, what is there to lose? And there is a C. You'll need to know this stuff anyway if marriage is even a possibility for you at some point in the future. Therefore, kindly sit, stay, focus, as some veterinarians were told at a congress recently. Now, secondly, we read that wives are expected to submit particularly to their own husband. There is absolutely no case at all for a man to expect women generally to submit to them on the excuse that scripture requires it. Because it just doesn't. It doesn't. Don't ever deliver or bite on that line. And because now I've actually officially used the submit word, I must explain some things about it before I create any misunderstandings. What Paul has written here under the prompting of the Holy Spirit is never meant for subjection or domination or manipulation of any kind, verbal or physical. Never, ever under any circumstances. And not by either sex. Although it is true and deeply wrong that men have misused the scripture to oppress women, it is also true that women have used their partners to manipulate their men. But God never meant for his word to be used for oppression or manipulation, and so it should not be used for those purposes. Ever. I hope that's true and clear. So what is the real intention of these verses? Well, verse 21 tells us, it says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And some, uh, some translations will say out of the reverence of God. Why are we going to submit or lavishly love? Like the actors say, what's our motivation? Well, it's because, as it says here, we have a deep respect, a reverence, a fear for God. That's why. He is the focus. This isn't some kind of power struggle for gender-based advantage. It's about a man and a woman joined together in marriage, both of them looking upward in reverence to their Lord, absolutely equal in worth in their creator's sight, 
laboring side by side to build something bigger than the sum of their two parts. And as they do, they reflect the image of God and build the common good of their relationship. And that is one way that they practically fulfill the call of verse 1 to become imitators of God. Let's talk now about how to understand that word submit. I think it's very important that we do that because there's often a difference between what we think a word might mean and what it actually means, particularly in Scripture. Here's an illustration about submission. You see, there was a mild-mannered man. He wasn't very happy with his state of affairs, so he was reading a book on being self-assertive, and he decided to start at home. So he stormed into his house, pointed a finger at his wife's face and said, from now on, I'm boss around here and my word is law. I want you to prepare me a big steak and then run me a bath. And then, when I've eaten and finished my bath, guess who's going to dress me and comb my hair? The mortician, said his wife. If I'm to say today, submit to anyone, but most especially to a lady, it's pretty certain that the response will be never, possibly accompanied by a blow to the head. And this is because of the way the word is almost now associated with oppression and an unwilling bending of the knee. And that makes it very difficult to find a way to deal with what is written here in Scripture. Well... The original Greek is always really helpful. But it is a little bit complicated, not too bad. You see, most of the original manuscripts don't actually contain the word submit in verse 22, although our English translations do. The original Greek sentence literally reads something like, wives to your own husbands. Now, if you just saw it on its own, it would look like nonsense, but if we understand that it's connected to the verse before it like this, So you read the whole thing together, submitting to one another in the fear of God, semicolon, we're going to say more about it, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. You see how they're joined together, that thing's not sitting out there by itself. And so when we read it like this, it becomes clear that exactly the same type of submission is intended generally for all believers to God and also specifically for wives to their husbands. So what is the word Um, submit actually mean in Greek? Well, the Greek word is hupotasso. And it's a composite word made up of hupo, which means under, and tasso, which means to arrange in an orderly manner. So its literal meaning is to place under in an orderly fashion. Now, one of the ways it could be used was for the way that soldiers would be arranged under their commanding officer in a disciplinary way. But there's also a completely different sense to the word, which describes a completely willing and continuous type of service. And this is how it is used here in the context of a wife's mission. So here's a man and a woman, and they are absolutely equal in God's eyes. Make no mistake about that. But the wife willingly makes a choice to set herself under her husband for the purpose of order and function in the family. She does it not so for the man's ego, but to fulfill the design that God has ordered for marriage. 
The other thing that we need to understand is the way that Jewish, Roman and Greek wives were seen in the culture at the time. All three cultures had the same opinion of men, oh, sorry, of women. It was a low opinion and consequently they had no or minimal rights. It was horrible. In Jewish culture, a woman was treated not as a person but as a thing and was owned by her husband in exactly the same way that he owned his livestock. He could do with her as he liked. He could not leave him, but he could divorce her for things like putting too much salt in his food. In the Greek culture, the duty of the woman was to remain indoors and to be as obedient as possible to her husband. It was a sign of a good woman that she must see as little, hear as little, and ask as little as possible. She had no kind of independent existence and no mind of her own and again her husband could divorce her almost at the drop of a hat as long as he returned her dowry. Well how about the Romans? Well again the law provided no rights for a woman. Legally she remained forever a child. When she was under her father's control she was sub subject to a Roman law which gave her father the right of life and death over her. Imagine that. And when she married, she passed equally into the power of her husband. Same thing, he had the power of life and death over her. She was entirely subject to her husband and entirely at his mercy. So, the whole attitude of ancient civilization, when this was written, was that no woman could dare to take any decision for herself. And unfortunately, that didn't change, really, for far too long. Women have been treated and regarded in such an appalling and disrespectful way for so long. Honestly, it makes me ashamed to even mention it. So, therefore, how do I, as a man, even dare to utter the word hupotasso? How do I dare to say submit? Because to our modern language ears, that sounds at least hypocritical. But let's try using our ancient language ears instead. You see, back in the day, hupotasso would be a really, really unusual word for a man to use towards a woman. Because he saw her just as a thing, he would instead use a word that means obey, a word used for slaves and children, for lesser beings. So, to ask a woman specifically to submit hupotasso, particularly in the willing senses used here, it's a really radical idea because it says that now I'm addressing a person who is similar in worth to me. What Paul has written here must have been really explosive back then. An idea that is not against God's design of equal worth and orderly arrangement, but utterly for it. And so with that understanding, I hope that we can set aside some of the unpleasantness that is associated with the use of that word today. Now, at this point, it might seem like a good time for me to start delivering some points on how to make submission work in real life. But I have two things against me, unfortunately. Firstly, time, because this is a long sermon and I still have to talk about men's part in things here. And secondly, I don't want to be moralizing or generalizing. 
everybody's circumstance here, everybody's relationship and arrangement in their marriage here is different. And so I believe all I could do is just bring you this general principle and ladies and gentlemen, you must work this out in your own marriages for yourselves. Submission is willing. It respects the Lord in first place, not man, although it is often a very ordinary man who is set in place in that chain of authority. It is a purposeful arrangement of two souls, each separately and equally loved and valued by God. And the purpose of that that arrangement is to demonstrate the glory and value of God's image to an unbelieving world as set within each one of us at creation. The end of it, submission, is for God's glory and for our good. Well, gentlemen, I was going to say I hope that you haven't been snoozing, but I have seen some of you snoozing. I can see lots of things from up here. You must be more subtle about closing your eyes. Let's read this text again. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, in the original Greek, the first part of the text reads like this. Oi andres agapete tas gunaikos. Husbands, love your wives. Now, I have a peculiar way of looking at things. So I can actually see something a little bit odd here, but I think it's also informative. It's the oi andres things. Now, andres just means man. And oi means the. So put together, they mean the man. But O-I reminds me of O-Y, a call to action. Oi! Hey, you! That's what we say, isn't it? And so we might get the sense of this instruction in quite an unconventional way. Oi, husband! Pay attention here. I want you to listen. And in in fact, that's exactly what's meant because these words are written in the present imperative, meaning do it and do it now. Oi! Have I got your attention? Good. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, I already do that. I buy her roses for Valentine's Day and I never ever say that her bottom looks too big. And then I have that sort of mushy feeling in my heart when I think about her. Well, that's not love, mate. That's indigestion. And it's also not the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. The Greek sentence gives us a clue. Because the type of love that is described there is agape. Now that mushy feeling that we've just mentioned, that's eros, erotic love. And it always comes along with some conditions. For example, I will love you passionately if you don't tell me that my bum is too big. Agape love is is the biggest kind of love. It is unconditional and sacrificial and unwavering in its intensity, no matter what the other one does. Its actions aren't based on emotion, but a desire to seek the other's highest good. And it's always used to describe God's love 
towards humans. So what does it look like in actions? Well, there's a really good description in 1 Corinthians 13, which I'm sure many of us know well, but I'm going to slightly paraphrase it. Agape loves long and is kind. Agape does not envy. Agape does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Agape does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape never fails. Gentlemen, that is what we are called to do for our wives. Do you see that? But how well are we actually doing? I think maybe you might be like me, but what happened when I was preparing the sermon was that when I read this, I had some questions for myself. How am I going to love my wife like that when I already have so many selfish thoughts and habits? How much have I already failed her in not loving her the right way? If I've messed up this much, is it worth even trying to change because I'm obviously just not made of the right stuff? How can I change? Well, of course, if we're going to rely on our own resources alone, it's almost certain we will fail because we have failed before. What will make it possible for a worldly man to become an agape man? It's not ever going to be easy and it must be genuine because we always know when the people close to us are not being genuine. And we don't want to be doing that to our wives or forget that our motivation for this, our main motivation, is respect for the Lord. Well, it's possible only by and through the Holy Spirit. If we look just a little bit earlier in this same chapter, there's a kind of a general scene-setting statement starting in verse 17. And it says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Well, there's the solution, a man's permanent condition. The will of the Lord is to be always filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we understand how this is written, it's not partially, by the way, it's brimming over with his presence. And how will that show up in daily life? Well, as it says here, it will be with a, a godly attitude, with thankfulness and submission. But how does that tie back to the call to be an agape man? Well, a godly attitude is necessarily an agape attitude. And note here too the general call to submission. Maybe we thought that submission was entirely our wives' part in this arrangement. But isn't agape founded on submission? How can I love like 1 Corinthians 13 without putting her needs before my own? Definitely means submission, doesn't it? 
And thus we have an answer to our starting question, which is how is it possible for a worldly man to love in this way? The answer cannot and must not be on our own strength, since that will always fail. But in the strength of the Holy Spirit, for he will never fail. The Holy Spirit flowing through us will give us the knowledge and means to love our wives properly. He is the power. Well, if he is the power, who is the example? I think that's pretty clear. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So there it is. If I'm looking for an example to model my life on, there he is, right away in the person of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. What is it then he did for the church that will help me to do a better job of being a godly husband? Well, I don't really know because I hardly ever open my Bible. No man is ever going to be very good at being spirit-filled or being Christ-like if he does not take care of his own spiritual condition. (laughs) It's really obvious. If I don't personally study the Bible, if I don't personally pray, how am I ever going to do a proper job of loving my wife? Of course I can't, because how can I show Christ if I don't really know what he looks like? And so this is a very practical place for us all to begin, men. Open our Bibles and study aids and devotionals and get on our knees, or if your knees aren't very good, sit. But pray. Pray fervently. And why should that be an unusual idea? The task is clearly both high and difficult. Success will not come without labor. No one who ever did anything hard did so without training and preparation and effort. So why on earth would we think ourselves to be exempt? It's just nonsense. We must prepare ourselves properly. So let's consider now how Christ is our example. What does he do? Well, he loves us by being both expansive and exact. When I think of the word expansive, I immediately think about a clear blue sky in an open place. You know, who stood here at the top of Mount Ruapehu? You know, one of the ski fields on a clear day. Have you done that? Have you seen the sky and the space? That's what I think about. Expansive stretches over and around me and pulls out round the corners out of my sight. I can hold my arms out as wide as I can and I can open my mouth but I can never take it all in. It's just too generous. It's too big. It's open and it opens me up. Agape love is like that. It's big and wide. It's not mean or measured. It makes me think of that song, The Love of God. Could we with ink the ocean full and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man ascribed by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, and nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. God's love is big, huge, gargantuan. There is space and ability in it for all creation and more. There's no chance that because some part needs another, needs something more, another would have to do without. He loves it all and he looks 
after the whole of it absolutely equally everywhere. And this is how we ought to be loving our wives, expansively, big blue sky love, not holding back like a ration, but letting go, giving it our all and more. And this we means we must love all parts of her the same. We can't pick the good parts for special attention while leaving others for none or worse, our scorn and derision. We can't be saying, I love you in the bedroom, but not in the supermarket, somewhat a prize giving and, well, perhaps a little at the Saturday market. No. Our love ought to be unflinching to circumstance, immovable in space and unchanging in intensity. To love her always and everywhere, no matter what she might have done or is. Just as Christ has done for our church. Just as Christ has done for each and every one of us here calls ourselves a believer. Jesus' example was to give every last thing he had, including his life. He died on the cross to make payment for the debt of all our sins. Today we consider a debt paid when we stick that card in the machine and press enter. If you want to buy something else, well, stick the card back in the slot. Every time you want something more. But that's not how Jesus did it. He paid both backwards and forwards at once. His loving sacrifice paid for both the sins that we had done before we accepted him as Lord and Saviour and for the sins that we did so afterwards. And so there is no debt to God at all and we are free to be his sons and daughters. It's like going down to countdown tomorrow. You know, this is what Jesus did. Imagine he went down to countdown tomorrow and you gave them $10 billion and all you've got in your trolley is two bottles of milk and a loaf of bread. And you say, hey, I just wanted to pay you now for everything I'm going to buy and by the way, also for everyone else who will ever come to the store. Well, they'd think you were nuts. But that's what Christ did. This illustrates the enormity of God's agape love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is what the text means when it says that he gave himself for his church. He literally did. He paid with his body. And that's our example, brothers. Christ loved his church and gave himself for it. He didn't hold back or look for excuses. He did what had to be done. He was a man. We must love our wives and give ourselves for them. We must do what needs to be done. We must be men. Although God's agape love is expansive, it is also exceedingly exact. Because despite its breadth, it always meets us precisely at our point of need. Our voice is never lost in the background chatter. And this is because he listens to us. He really listens and because he is always interested in what we do. I'm sure that my wife appreciates that she is loved and valued generally, but sometimes she needs particular attention and action in a specific way. I, I can't neglect the parts because I only care about the whole. 
Now some of you might know that I've recently bought a van for work. Because it's new to me, I've been very diligent and interested in keeping it clean. I've been polishing it and putting that shiny stuff on the tyres and that smelly stuff on the dash and so on. And that's all very well, but let's say that that's all I ever do. No matter how much I drive it, I will never check the tyre pressure or change the oil or replace old radiator hoses. How long do you think it's going to last? Of course it's going to fail. It's going to be very shiny when it blows up. (laughs) But that's no good if it doesn't go. I'll never get to work on time. And so it is too with our wives. Brothers, make sure you lovingly wax and polish her regularly. But don't forget to replace the air filter when it gets dirty. Agape love is independent of time, place or judgment, no matter where and no matter when or why, it reaches each one of us the same. It holds us, rescues us and values us. Agape love reaches her, holds her, rescues her and values her above all created things. If you are looking for something really big and worthwhile to do with your life, Here it is, right here. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. For most men, a sense of achieving something is very important. We want to know that we count, that we have done something worthwhile. So we want to be asking ourselves the I question. What will I say about this question at the end of my life. Will I be satisfied because I was the boss at work, because I had a flash wife and a flash car and a sports model wife? No, I should not, because as a believer, I know that these things will be burnt up. Ash, gone in the wind. And in just a few years, the truth is that no one will remember who I was or what I did. What remains then? What perseveres? What is permanent? Love. Then I know what a worthwhile goal is. The Lord has given me a specific task. And it's one all husbands are given equally, which is to faithfully love and shepherd our wives to the glory of God in a consuming way. Isn't that great? So let me finish now. Ladies, let me draw you in here too because we have a common task. Knowing that we must submit or live self-sacrificially is not enough. Knowing is never enough. We must live it. And I know that I am going to have to do a whole lot of thinking and a whole lot of changing from this day forward. So, will you help me? Will you... Help each other? Can we help our brothers and sisters to do this too? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful picture for 
reminding us that what the world says about marriage is 100% wrong. That it's supposed to be this picture, this echo of how you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, wonderfully interact. And Lord, we know it is hard, but we know that you have given us your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that, I really pray that we would look to your Spirit to build that relationship to be what you intended to be. Because I know, Lord, it will be for our great good. And I pray it will be for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.